Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. And I'm speaking to Professor Amy Thompson about the ontology of social groups. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Would you be able to give us a definition of ontology? Sure. It's a term that's been used different ways in different philosophical traditions. In the phenomenological tradition, it was used to mean a study of the kinds or categories of things that there might be without worrying about whether or not they really exist and what these sorts of things would be, how they relate to other things, what their existence conditions are, and so on. In the more recent analytic metaphysics tradition, it's been used to mean one's theory of what really exists, or what one's best theories commit one to saying really exists. Now, I use the term more in the first sense. I've done a lot of writing recently on what we can be doing legitimately when we do philosophy, where I've argued that the latter approach, to think of philosophy as capable of engaging in a deep study of what really exists, is actually really misguided and leads us astray. So when I talk about doing social ontology or studying the ontology of social groups, the kinds of questions that I'm interested in asking are roughly, what would it be for there to be a social group? Or more specifically, what would it be for there to be the, what would it take for the Supreme Court or Manchester United or a race or gender group to exist? What, would it require that there be people having certain intentions, or does it require certain kinds of background practices or norms, what are the relationships between social groups and physical objects in the world, and so on. So it's that kind of question I'm really most interested in when I deal with social ontology. So what was it that inspired your interest in the ontology of social groups? I've worked for a number of years on um, social objects of various kinds, on things like works of art, artifacts money, churches, in part because I think they've been relatively neglected in philosophy, and I think they're particularly interesting because they're objects that seem to depend, on the one hand, on features of the physical world, but on the other hand, also on our beliefs, intentions, and practices. And a lot of those objects, if you reflect on it for a minute, it's pretty clear that their existence depends on that of some relevant social group, that there are only flags relative to the existence of a country and its citizens. Uh, there's only money relative to people who accept certain things as legal tender. There are only churches relative to a certain religion. So the interest in social objects sort of had as its natural correlate a kind of interest in the social groups that they depend on and are of interest to. I also, so it's sort of natural that I would come back to it at some stage, I was also particularly interested in coming back to this issue in light of a lot of recent really interesting work on 
social groups like race and gender done by people like Sally Hasslinger and Anthony Appiah. I think it's particularly interesting and particularly socially relevant problems to do with understanding these social groups. Yeah, that was a really good point about the, the objects and their connection to social groups because when you, when you think about it, like uh, when you sort of say to me about social groups, I sort of think of like a, a ten pin bowling group or some sort of sporting group or as you pointed out a religious group. So the objects would be, you know, a church and perhaps books connected with that. So do you think that there's any social groups that don't uh, aren't sort of connected with objects? I mean I guess there probably are. There's Certainly in these kinds of what Kate Richard calls type 2 social groups, groups that you can sort of belong to by default without intending to join, it's not obvious, at least, on initial reflection, there's any distinctive objects connected to social groups defined by race or gender or things like that. So I suppose there are, of course, certain objects that are naturally associated with and that it's sort of normative that certain genders take interest in, that girls play with these kinds of toys and boys with those. So that connection is not as tight as the relationship between, say, a book club and the books it reads, or the, the bowling group and the bowling alley. But to the extent that, as, as I'll see going on, I think of social groups as helping certain norms for how we're to act. And certainly the great majority of our norms for how to act also involve objects that we're acting with or acting on, then that's, I think, going to be these kinds of natural, pervasive connections between social groups and their, their relevant objects. So could you describe what exactly a social group is? Yeah, I could do my best. I mean, here's what I think is part of the problem behind with that, even that question. So social group, I think, it's not a term that plays a role in our normal lives. We don't go talking normally. I mean, philosophers and sociologists, I might ask about social groups, but it's not a central term in our lives. So in some sense, I think it's a technical term that's open for us to define depending on what role we want this term to play for us, what we think its function should be. You can start, I mean, terms that do play a role in our lives are terms for individual social groups. So we do think of things like the bowling club or the Girl Scouts or the Manchester United football team, or the group of African-Americans, or Methodists, or whatever. And we can start with a sort of more natural analysis, I think, of those groups. And part of what I think people are after when they ask what social groups are is to ask what sort of thing these are, right, with those kinds of paradigm examples in mind. A lot of past philosophical analysis of social groups have really only been suitable for some particular social groups, you know, some have thought of them as, like Margaret Gilbert thinks of them as plural subjects that are formed when people agree to be subject to, to shared intentions and shared goals. And that might work if you're intentionally joining a book club, for example, or maybe even the Supreme Court. But it certainly doesn't work for race and gender groups. No one intentionally joins those. So what I've done in my work is to try to figure out what these different kinds of social groups might nonetheless have in common. And the proposal that I make, and it really is a proposal of how we, one way we can use the term social group, is to think of a social group as a group that has social significance. And what it is for a group of people, I think, to have social significance isn't necessarily for them to make a kind of intentional agreement together, 
or necessarily to share a certain kind of feature. Like, you know, there's all kinds of medical groups, people who all have a kind of obscure disease, who aren't really a social group, or have a longer second toe. They're not a social group. What I think is significant to groups that make them social groups is that the people in them are bound by shared norms of various kinds, norms about how they are to act and behave, what they are and aren't to do in various circumstances, and about how others are to behave towards them. So the understanding of social groups that I propose is one that takes a social group to be a group of individuals bound by shared norms. Right, that leads me into my next question. How do social groups give normative structure to our lives? Well, to put it sort of bluntly, I think social groups tell us what we're to do, how we're to react. So, for example, I'm a professor, right, and there are certain social norms that come with being a professor and a professor of the University of Miami to do with who I have to give deference to on matters um, administrative, like deans, who I must give aid and advice to, like my own students, who I don't have such formal duties to. Think of also the norms that govern us in other ways, as members of the PTA for our kids' classes, or even norms that govern our children. Right? One of the first things they learn is how we students in Mrs. Higby's kindergarten class are to behave, right? or what we're to dress, if there's a school, dress as if we have a school uniform, and so on. I think of these sort of norms that govern our membership in social groups as really structuring our lives. It doesn't mean we always follow them, of course. We can rebel against them. I mean, there are certain norms that govern my behavior as a woman that I could intentionally reject and rebel against, but you can only rebel against the norm if you acknowledge it and you acknowledge that it has bearing on you, right? A man can't rebel against the norms that govern how women should behave in the same way, right? And so I do think of this as providing the sort of the normative net that structures our lives and against which we have to sort of build our reactions, at least to the extent that we are understanding competent members of society. Yeah, so how do norms play a role in social groups? I've tried to distinguish at least three different kinds of roles that norms play in social groups, internal norms, structuring norms, and external norms. So internal norms are norms for group members about, I mean, it can be anything, right, but about how you are to behave, to dress, to eat. You can think about the norms that govern, especially members of, like, strict religious communities, like an Amish or Mennonite community or Orthodox Jewish communities, where they really govern quite a lot of one's behavior, how you're to dress, how you're to eat, in some cases, what you are or aren't to drive or how to transport yourself in, what kind of equipment you are or aren't to use and when, as well as behavior. Those are the internal norms, how I'm to behave as a member of the group. There's also these structuring norms, which will vary across different members of the group when it's a highly structured group, and some groups I think are structured and some aren't. So say in a traditional church, in the Catholic church, there are very different norms that govern the priests, members of the choir, the altar boys, the bishops, the parishioners, and so on, and how they interact with each other. And there'll be different norms then, although maybe all Catholics are supposed to behave in certain ways, there'll be very different behaviors required from the priests versus the parishioners um, during a Sunday service. Then there's also external norms, and I think these have been less noticed, less acknowledged, but I think they're really important to understanding some of these tacit groups, like race and gender groups. Those are norms for how members of that group are to be treated by others, whether those others are or are not part of that group. And you can think here 
of the different norms that govern treatment of say, men versus women in terms of how they're to be paid for their work, how permissible it is to interrupt them, how much space is permissible to take up next to them when you sit on an airplane, right? All these sort of subtle things. You can think of parallel examples for the race case to do with how members of that group are to be treated by outsiders that apply to members of that group, whether they like it or not, essentially. So those are sort of at least, and there may be more, but those are at least three different sorts of norms that play a role, I think, in distinguishing and structuring social groups. And some will be more prominent in some groups than another. So I think racial and gender groups, as far as I know, don't have structuring norms. There's not like a president and vice presidents and secretaries type role. They seem to be governed by largely external norms, also to some extent internal norms. In other cases, it, it may go in other directions. Do you think that social groups give individuals a sense of belonging? Yes, absolutely. I think one of the interesting parts of looking at social groups is that it can help you get a better understanding of what we mean when we talk about people's sense of identity and belonging and self-identification. Once you think of these social groups not in terms of shared features or voluntarily joining something, but rather in terms of these kinds of normative structures that sort of affect everything about how others treat you, how you act and treat yourself and treat others uh, in and outside your group, then you can also distinguish some social groups that have sort of where the normative fault lines appear, so to speak. There's lots of different norms that are associated with being a member, with being a woman, or with being a member of a certain religion, and so on. Where we have these normative fault lines that are going to end up governing so much of what we are seen as supposed to be doing and how others treat us, right, and what's seen as appropriate treatment, then those are the ones that are going to most likely form core parts of our self-identification. Whereas other social groups we can join informally, like the Sunday afternoon book club, they'll have a few norms. You should read the book. You should come to meetings. But they're not going to be such a core part of who we are because they're not going to play such a role in structuring these other aspects of our lives, of how others treat us on other days, of what our life prospects are, and, and so on. And then I think there can be a couple of different ways in which we get this kind of sense of belonging in a social group. In some cases, where it's a, a group based on a sort of voluntary commitment, right, then we can get a sense of belonging through a shared commitment with others. We're all committed to advancing the cause of the civil liberties or to improving the plight of the homeless or to supporting the church or whatever it may be. Uh, we can get a sense of belonging by having this shared commitment, and that's, I think, what Margaret Gilbert does a good job at analyzing. But I think there can also be a sense of belonging that comes from seeing yourself as part of a group that has a shared experience, even if it's an experience of oppression, right, that, oh gosh, other women can understand this shared experience of being constantly interrupted, disregarded, denigrated. Other people of color can understand the experience of discrimination, of being subject to implicit bias, and so on. So I think you can get the sense of belonging by being subject to both the internal norms and the external norms, and so you can get a sense of belonging it comes with being a, a member of a group, even one that, that hurts your life chances, and even one that you didn't voluntarily choose to join. 
Could there also be the case that individuals who are members of particular social groups, for example, sporting groups, due to disabilities or perhaps they're probably like me, not, not able to play a particular sport to a, to a fairly good standard, to be able to, to join these groups, do you think they feel a sense of rejection? Absolutely, they can and probably commonly do. And another sort of interesting feature of this analysis is you can say, look, it's not just a feeling. It's not just you can say to them, oh, you just feel rejected, get over it, go join some other group. But failing to belong to some of these groups, especially if they're considered culturally important, right, it's more than that. It's not just that they lose the chance to bond with other football players in the pursuit of a common goal and they lose that teamwork and exercise. But they also lose all that comes from being a member of that group in terms of the external norms, right? In terms of how others are to treat them. If you're the popular kids, if you're the football players or whatever, then there are very real consequences for how others treat you that come with not being part of that group. So the sort of depth of exclusion and rejection some people feel, I think, is not to be dismissed because... It does have all these normative consequences, not only for how you can behave, but for how others are going to treat you. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor Amy Thompson about the ontology of social groups. Yes, it's one one group I would really love to be a member of, and that's a, a group of, of artists. But unfortunately, I'm not artistic at all. But but I, I and I sort of say to myself, well, that's fine. I actually can't really join a, a group for people who paint or or even people who sing or have other talents in that area. But I always say to myself that. I'm a member of an audience and that's a really important part that I play because if we all had those talents, I mean, there wouldn't be any audience to appreciate them, would there? That's right. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, that's another interesting fact you bring up is that sometimes these groups have a kind of mutual dependence on each other. So there can't really be a group of performers without there also being an audience and there are norms governing what it is to be part of the audience, just as there are norms governing what it is to be a performance or a creator of art. So, yes, often there are these kinds of mutually dependent groups, and I think a real study of the social world and of social groups has to be kind of holistic in that way, that acknowledges the interrelationships among groups, too. And you see these kinds of, like, you know, theater for young audiences and young audience, basically young audience training programs that are all about indoctrinating children into what it is to be an audience member, right? It's not just to sit in that chair at the right time, but there are also norms for that. Mm-hmm. So what are the functions of social group concepts? So I think the way to think about that, if you want to ask what the function is of any range of concepts at all, one good way to get at it is to ask yourself what we would be missing if we lacked those concepts. What couldn't we do? You can imagine someone, whether with a disability or someone who's just brought to Earth from Mars and hasn't a clue, who has no social group concept at all, right? What would that person be missing? Well, this is going to be the subject for a great comedy or maybe a tragedy, right? Because that's going to be a person who doesn't recognize, can't tell the difference between 
a police officer and a vegetable seller, right, won't know what, how you ought to behave to each, and then they quickly get in trouble with the police officer. It's going to be someone who doesn't know how to behave to the priest versus to the parishioner. It's going to be someone who doesn't know how to behave in a grocery store to the cashier, who to give your money to, right, who to ask if you need help, who doesn't know how to do a job because they don't know who they have to serve and who they have to defer to. So I think of the function of social group concept basically enabling us to navigate the social world and those who have trouble grasping them, who don't see these different normative roles that come with membership in different social groups, are going to be really in a lot of very real trouble and very real danger because they will always act in ways that their world mates will see as inappropriate, to be punished, to be ostracized. So I think if you kind of social group concepts are really essential to our well-being as social creatures. Yeah, do you have any future study plans? Yeah, a lot, but too many to fill the space provided, as always. <laughs> um, a lot of what I've worked on recently is work on uh, the methods of philosophy and what philosophy can legitimately do. I have a book that's almost done on questions about possibility and necessity in metaphysics and how to address those kinds of questions. It's called Norms and Necessity. So hopefully that will be done relatively soon. I've also got ongoing interest. I've come to think of a lot of debates in metaphysics as really engaged in sort of negotiating for how our concepts ought to be used of various sorts. And this brings me into work in what gets called conceptual engineering and conceptual ethics. And that was already sort of at play in my talking about how to understand social groups. And I think that the question isn't so much what social groups are as how we ought to use this term, what function ones deserve for us. And then I'm also slated to write a book on social ontology. I have a lot of past papers on social ontology, the ontology of social objects as well as groups, as we were discussing. And I'm uh, slated to write a book on that, covering questions like, um, do social objects exist? Are social kinds, real kinds? How can they, how do they relate to sort of the natural kinds studied by the natural sciences? And how can we come to know the social world? Uh, that is, how can the social world both be something that we create through our beliefs and practices and yet has a lot about it that's still open to discovery, that can surprise us, that can be hidden and even sort of insidious features of the social world that remain to be discovered if it does depend on human beliefs and intentions. So those are sort of the three big kinds of projects that I'll be working on over the next few years. Yeah, they're, they're really fascinating topics as well. Uh, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I've been speaking to Professor Amy Thompson about the ontology of social groups. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought and also hope you had a happy holiday period.